Most of you, as I look around in the room, will be familiar with the name C.S. Lewis. For those of you who aren't, this was a very prominent Christian author of the last century. His works are still sort of standards in apologetics and in many ways in pastoral care. And at the time of World War I, C.S. Lewis made apparently a vow with his friend Patty Moore that if one of them died uh, during the First World War, that they would take up responsibility for the other's family. And in fact, Patty Moore did die in World War I. And C.S. Lewis then more or less adopted his mother, uh, Janie Moore, Mrs. Moore. And eventually uh, she moved into his house and was there for decades with him and his brother, And that turned out to be a substantial trial for C.S. Lewis. He didn't really complain about this relationship publicly, but his brother was more free to speak about it. And he said that Mrs. Moore was intensely selfish, domineering, and demanding a constant drain on C.S. Lewis's energy and that it was both an admiration of Lewis and an irritation to see how completely, this is a very interesting thing, to see how completely the whole of his life was subordinated to hers, financially, socially, and recreationally. And in Lewis's letters, about the only thing that you see about, uh, about this is that around 1947, he said his time was almost completely consumed with duties as a nurse and a domestic servant. Uh, He was charged and and demanded by her to walk her dog uh, regularly. And you have to remember now, this is an Oxford Don. Uh, He's a world-renowned professor. He's writing all kinds of books and speaking on the BBC, and yet he's serving persistently this woman because he made a vow to his friend and was, in his mind, bound by that through decades and decades of personal suffering and service. Now, why would I tell you that as we go through 1 Corinthians? I think that we're in a series on, in 1 Corinthians that really uh, is a poke into the whole modern view of ourselves as independent agents who are out there in the world trying to find our own happiness. We we say, I'm not going to have any constraints on me. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do it when I want to do it. And in secular terms, I'm going to be whoever I make up that I want to be. And the result of that is just suffering, misery, anxiety, depression, exhaustion, all kinds of things. And, And none of us in this room is really immune to that kind of thing. So as we looked last week, and you'll have to go back and listen to that message, the same theme comes through in in this message today and really carries through in the weeks to come that freedom and happiness and joy really belong to giving ourselves to Jesus Christ as Lord, to, to limiting ourselves and letting ourselves be limited by who God made us, who he has recreated those who believe to be, and in the circumstances in which they live to find Christ's freedom and joy as we are bound in those and not be looking for greener pastures everywhere else and not be making up and fantasizing about 
other lives that we might live, but to give ourselves to the life which we have been given in Christ at this point. So with that kind of introduction, I want to call your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And today we're going to look at verses 1 through 16. So 1 Corinthians 7 verses 1 through 16 is on page 11 in your worship guide, and I see it up on the screen as well. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, there's a lot of traffic in those verses, and a lot of things have been written about them. We're going to try to to sort of take a straight line. We certainly won't answer all the questions uh, that are in there today. But in the context of the whole chapter, and we didn't print the whole chapter today, the, the idea behind this is that you serve Christ as Lord either in singleness or in marriage. You serve Christ as Lord either in singleness or in marriage. And so the first thing that we want to say here is that the text says to put Christ first, to serve Christ as Lord in marital sexual relations. And you see this in verses 1 through 6, and it's important to get this in the text. And I think that as many times as I had read this and gone over it, it wasn't clear to me. Uh, What has happened here is that Paul went to Corinth, and he preached for a year and a half and established a church, and then he left. Later on, he wrote them a letter about some matters. And now uh, some people from Chloe's house have brought him messages back. And they have also written him a letter that is probably, and the text isn't real clear about this, kind of a defiant letter, like we're not going to listen to what you have to say, Paul. So in the book now, he's turning from what Chloe's house has reported to what their letter actually says. And that's really, really important. What he's saying here is a specific response to specific things that were said in the letter. And that's what verse 1 said. It says, about the matters about which you wrote. 
And apparently they wrote to him, it's good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. And, and they were probably promoting this Greek idea of wisdom and purity that went beyond the bounds of the Bible. We're going to be sort of more holy and more pure than what the Bible says. And so Paul responds to that, and he says, in the, you know, basically in the prior chapter, we already dealt with uh, sexual immorality and visiting prostitutes, and you have this problem with sexual immorality. So each man should have his own wife, and each wife should have her own husband, and get rid of this idea of celibacy in marriage. Each person should give conjugal rights to the other person. And he says, again, this is a reflection from our prior message last week. Your body's really not your own. It belongs to the Lord, and in marriage, then, it belongs to the other person. That's, that's everything that's in here. And he says, well, you're talking about celibacy within marriage. Um, you can deprive yourselves for a little bit of time if you want to devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that you won't be tempted. And he said, I, I say this not as a command, but as a concession. So really, I want to emphasize in this text that, that sometimes uh, chapter 7 has been uh, read as overturning sort of the rest of the Bible about the goodness of marriage, uh, the, the appropriateness of sexual relations within a, a marriage of one man and one woman who are joined together for life. There's all kinds of confusion about this, but it's answering this specific question about celibacy in marriage. Now, you might say, this is silly. Like, what, where in the world did this come from? Well, I just want to remind you that coming out of the uh, First Great Awakening in the 1700s in, in England, the Quakers got going, and there was a particular sect of Quakers who were more charismatic and felt like they had divine revelations coming to them, and they ended up being called the Shaking Quakers, and that reminds us of some of the shaking revivals, allegedly revivals that we've seen around in our time, the Shaking Quakers, and they ended up being known as the Shakers. And so most of you uh, may have heard that you can go to the Midwest or to the Northeast in Maine and buy a Shaker chair. So eventually that in the 1800s came to America, and the Shakers were an egalitarian bunch where men and women were supposed to be equal. They were actually led by women, and they promoted celibacy. This very, it's almost a direct contradiction to what Paul says in this first paragraph, that to join a Shaker community, you had to disavow your prior marriage and come in as a celibate into that community. So I just point that out to you to say that this isn't some wild thing that, that would never happen apart from ancient Greece. It has happened in, in recent, if you want to call it recent times. And so what shall we do then in terms of of applying this, well, I just want to emphasize that this, again, just is a direct assault to modern expressive individualism. It's, it's, you have to get this, this, you have to let it kind of confront you and rebuke you. And I would include, I'm 64 years old, it confronts and rebukes me. You know, I'm a product of the 60s and 70s, and, and all, the, all that kind of thing that led to where we are right now really started a couple hundred years ago. Uh, this is directly opposed to that. It says, you, again, are not your own. Reflecting back on the prior passage, if you're in Christ, 
You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. And it means that your body, you don't have exclusive rights even over your body. And think about how that speaks to Roe versus Wade and where our country has gone as a whole. But, but really more internalize it for yourself. That in my whole person, I'm giving myself to another. First to the Lord, and then to the person with whom I'm married. Now, again, on a, on a pastoral note, and I think we could talk about this for an hour or more in a discussion thing, I have been absolutely shocked to find in some pastoral counseling recently of one side of a marriage pulling this out and demanding conjugal relations from the other person. Can I just advise you against that? I didn't hear enough of a laugh out of that. I mean, there's supposed to be a nervous laugh about that. The whole point of this is that I'm submitted to the Lord and my gift of myself in those relationships, conjugal relationships, to my spouse is done in love. So that means that there are times when your hormones aren't raging or anything and you say, yes, this will be loving to you. I want to give myself to you in this situation. But it never means uh, demanding these conjugal rights. So I don't know what to tell you about this, except if you're married, you go home and and have a a long conversation about this where you sit down and pray and submit yourselves to the Lord and talk it through what Paul's saying here. Am, Am I giving myself up to the Lord and to my spouse? And so... It also really emphasizes uh, the beauty of how God has, has created everything. We read Genesis 2, that marriage is good, that sexuality is good, expressed in a one-man, one-woman union that's committed for life. Paul is simply reaffirming that here. And, and this, the, another application of this is everything that you think makes me purer and holier than everybody else that's beyond Scripture is to be condemned. And we do this in the history of the church over and over again. To be holy in Christ and to follow scriptures is not enough. Let me add something on that separates me out from other people a little bit more. So let's move on from that then. You put Jesus first in marital conjugal relationships. And you know I'm using a lot of sort of veiled language. We have a a multi-generational audience out here and whatnot. But those of you who get it, you get it. So let's go on to the second thing, is that you have to put Jesus first, either as unmarried or married. And we're going to take up this next paragraph. He then addresses, he said, I wish that everybody was the way I am, which is single. But each has his own gift from God. And this is where we get this idea of a gift of singleness. There are people who say, look, I'm single. I'm either single or I'm widowed or I'm a widower. And I'm following Christ, and I'm really content with that. Um, I, I love the Lord, and a spouse actually would be a distraction in this. Even though marriage is good, I want to have this undevoted uh, following of the Lord. Some, Paul obviously had that as a gift from God. And so he says to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. That, that's a good gift to have, but it's a gift. But if they can't exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. What we've said all the time is if you're chasing after the Lord as a person who's unmarried 
and you find yourself distracted by your desires to be married and the desires that go along with that in terms of sexuality, then you're actually not following the Lord wholeheartedly. You're distracted all the time. So it's fine for you to pursue marriage, which is a good thing. This is all pretty standard stuff that I've been steeped in for a long time. And I don't know if, you're, if this is the way you've handled it or not, but I'm sort of just reporting this out. It's pretty clear to the text. And then he says to the marriage. So that's widows, widowers, single folks. You fall hard after the Lord. If you find that your desires keep tripping you up, then it's fine for you to pursue marriage. And now he turns to the, to the married folks. And he says again, and I want to emphasize this in 1 Corinthians 7, it's consistent with the rest of the Bible. You can't read it in, in any other way. He says, the Lord has said, the Lord Jesus has said, you can't give your spouse a certificate of divorce and send them away. Moses told you this because of the hardness of your heart. But in the beginning, God said, a man will uh, leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let man not separate. That's what he's referring to. And he says, so then, and I think you have to put this in the context of the question, it's better for a man not to have sex with a woman. Um, he's, he's answering this question. He's saying, those of you who fled your marriage out of this sort of false celibacy narrative, you, you can't get out that way. And so he says, this is what the Lord said. The wife should not separate from her husband. And then he gives this caveat, if she does, she's still married. You've got to return or remain unmarried. And that does not, you see in the context, give us sort of a permanent separated but married status. You just have to read this in the context of the whole Bible. So if you're thinking about that, I think you're going contrary to the rest of Scripture. You can't pull this phrase out as a proof text for that. And then he says, and the husband should not divorce his wife. I'm not going to bother you. There's a lot of different Greek verbs in here about separating and divorcing and whatnot. It becomes fairly complicated, but I think the ESV has done a good job. This is my summary. I'm probably talking too much. Is that if you're single, follow Jesus. Make him Lord wholeheartedly. If you're constantly tripped up in that pursuit by your desire to be married, that's, that's fine. You can pursue that. Now, it doesn't guarantee that, that there's going to be a fulfillment of that. I understand that there's frustration in that for a lot of people. And then he turns to the married, and he says, hey, will you get rid of this crazy notion about celibacy and marriage? And if you've run away because of that, you need to come back. And you're not, let, let's reform this whole thing and get it straightened out and make marriage between one man and one woman permanent the way Genesis that Jesus affirms says it should be. So this is what following Christ in married and singleness means. Now, again, people have written many massive books to singles and other people. We have to sort of move on from that. But the one thing that I want to say is a, a summary for this is really to talk about being content in Christ where you are. Let's have a pause. This is really talking about being content in Christ where you are. I was reading this week a, a little paragraph from the preacher and teacher Sinclair Ferguson. He wrote it in Ligonier. And he was invited to a college campus uh, conference at one point. And he gave two uh, sermons or lectures. He preached twice. And the, the people who uh, formed the conference called like an emergency leadership meeting that they called him to. 
And they said to him, you've had two hours uh, telling us about knowing Christ, but you didn't tell us anything to do. And they were trying to get him to to really amend sort of the track of what he was saying. And and he was criticizing in that this this move that we have to, can you just tell me three things to do and then I'll be content where I am? And so what we, want, what we really want to talk about as a family is being united with Christ and per- pursuing contentment either in singleness or in marriage according to the gospel. And so I just, you have to ask yourself, has the Holy Spirit brought me to Jesus? Have I, have I believed? And rest, am I resting on Him? Am I united with him by the Holy Spirit? Is Christ really present with me in my circumstances for his glory? Am I resisting the tendency to fight against him in the circumstances, in the marriage, in the singleness that he's given me? Do I have any fellowship with Christ any comfort from his love, any knowledge of his tenderness and his compassion, well then, that's, that's the pathway, right? And, and there's a thousand details. There, there, there's probably an infinite number of details and personality structure issues and histories and whatnot, but they all have to be pursued under the tenderness of Christ. And so you can work out, you know, my question, what about this and what about that, maybe in conversation with another believer and reading the scriptures, but ultimately your aim is to be satisfied in Christ. So, you know, if you want to read a big book about that, you can get Jeremiah Burroughs. He was a Puritan who wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And we just want to talk then and just say this, this really emphasizes the beauty the beauty of Christ in you, the hope of glory, whether you're married and you feel like it's very satisfying and, and the best thing that ever happened to you, or whether it has uh, its requisite strains and sufferings. And the same thing is true if you're single. This is following Christ as gentle Lord in the circumstances that you've been given. And maybe this opens out to you in a lot of other areas your health, where your children or grandchildren are, your circumstances, your finances. You are where you are today, and the call is to meet Christ and and find his tenderness to you today. So the the first point in this was, was putting Jesus first in marital conjugal relations And the second verse that we're talking about is putting Jesus first, whether you're unmarried or married. And the third thing that we see in this text is putting Jesus first if you're you're a believer and you're married to an unbelieving spouse. Verse 12 says, so we're moving on to our third point now, to the rest I say, and he says, I, not the Lord, which means 
Again, we don't believe in red-letter Bibles around here. If you have a red-letter Bible, it's fine. But the point that we're making in that is that it's not like Jesus' words are more the Word of God than the rest of the Bible, right? And so Paul's not affirming sort of a dichotomy in Scripture between what he says and what Jesus says. He's simply saying the Lord affirmed what Genesis says, and now we have a new situation in front of us. And I'm telling you as an apostle, this is what I'm saying. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Let's skip 14 for a second and go over to 15. And then he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And again, we get these, these words. There's a, there's a lexical stock here that he goes from word to word to word. You're not bound in that relationship because God has called you to peace. So again, we, we find Paul simply affirming, again, the permanence of marriage. And is it, it, the text doesn't really say this, <clears throat> but it's what was behind this this sort of false purity, uh, where you're going to be celibate in marriage. Uh, you're, going to be, you're going to be pure. Well, if you have conjugal relations between a person who's been declared holy in Christ with a person who's still an unbeliever, doesn't that pollute the believer as one flesh? I, I think that is likely what stands behind this, even though the text doesn't explicitly say this. And Paul says, no, no. We're going to come to that in the fourth point. He says, your marriage is permanent unless somebody runs away. And it's just pretty plain right here in the text. So if, you're, if, if that's your situation or you're counseling other people in that situation, if you're following Christ, the point is you follow Christ as Lord with your unbelieving spouse as long as they're consenting to live with you. But if you wake up in the morning and find that there's a note on the table that says, I can't take living with you anymore uh, because you follow Christ or whatever the reason is, and I'm gone to California or, or wherever, I'm leaving, then you're not supposed to coerce that person into staying. You're not supposed to attempt to coerce that person in, into staying. You're supposed, what's the principle here? Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Let him be Lord. And so, so that gives what's happening here. And I read this week a testimony by a lady named Sheila Dougal. And she got married when she was 19. And the man she got married to uh, had professed faith in Christ in a Bible-believing church and had been baptized. And she thought everything was fine. But figured out very quickly that that was a false profession and that he really wasn't going to follow Jesus in that relationship. And she began uh, her journey at 19 years old saying, Lord, how can I do this? How can I, do, how can I live this out this way? And it was a beautiful, really, work of how Jesus met her over and over again. She's been married for 28 years now to a husband who still does not have faith and repentance. And it almost kind of brings me to tears that the, the wonderful things that the Lord taught her and did in her life through the course of that relationship are really astounding. And, and the Lord really said, you know, your job, uh, a steward, this is from 2 Corinthians 4, the Lord used this in her life, that, that a steward has to be found faithful. 
And that's the, the communication to her, the illumination of that scripture to her was, all you have to do here is be faithful to me. And she was faithful one day at a time that has lasted now about 28 years that has given her a deep understanding of Jesus. And, you know, that's the same thing we would say about C.S. Lewis. It was a lot of his understanding and insight into relationship with Christ really born out of this vow that he took that ended up being a lot of suffering. And we're saying the same thing here. There's a beauty in it if that is the situation that you're in. But if that person runs away, you're no longer bound. So let's just apply this. And again, I'm, I'm covering a lot of ground. I don't think we've talked about these things in sermons very much. And I have found that other people aren't really on the same track uh, that our church is on doctrinally. And just to, to emphasize, there are two grounds for divorce, for being released from a marriage. One is adultery or sexual immorality. And the other is abandonment of a believer by an unbeliever, and you see that here. Now, does that mean that you have to take the avenue out if, if your spouse has committed adultery? Well, it's a glorious thing if the person repents that you forgive them and it can be restored. But still, there are those grounds. And I think here, and I've been in situations like this before, if somebody runs off and is gone for a while, or if they come back, are you going to give them conjugal rights after six months or a year? Or should you, to follow the Lord, draw a line in his hand and say, no, uh, you've abandoned me? Are you going to check for diseases and other kinds of things before that person is allowed back in? There's a lot of complications to this. And I won't really, I won't really go into the whole thing, but just to say that there are these two grounds. And, and just to clarify one other thing that seems to have come up, um, domestic assault or domestic violence isn't listed in Scripture as a grounds for divorce, right? And we should stick with that. So what happens if there are threats to, uh, physical threats to a person within a marriage? Well, God has given the police and the government the power of the sword. And so if that's you or that's somebody you know, we want to immediately take the person who's at threat and get them out of there because the Bible says do not kill, and that means protecting and, and, and saving lives. So you help that person take a stand. You call the police, and then they come with the power of the sword. They come with the power of the sword to protect that person. And so then there are restraining orders, and there are other things that usually will come out of that that might clarify in the end that a believer has been abandoned by an unbeliever. And it's very important for the church to be involved in this and to be able to stand up and make declarations. We have declared this person un unrepentant in this way. And that's what, you know, excommunication does. And there's all kinds of things that flow out of that. So you can have, you can, you can value life and you can protect people and still keep your two grounds for divorce. Just, just to clarify that out there, and we're going to move on from this point now. The point on this is if you're married to an unbeliever and they consent to live with you, then glorify God in the place where you are. If they run away, then you're no longer bound by that. And the last thing that I think that I want to, to really lift us up about and to be excited about is Paul's rationale in this last paragraph is really uh, astounding to me. Verse 14 says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. Now I just re recall to you all the talk about holiness in, in 1 Corinthians so far, if I remember correctly, has been definitive holiness. 
that when you believe in Christ, you're set apart to the Lord as holy. It's in chapter 1, it's in, it's in chapter 6, that, that God makes a decree. Oh, you're, you're joined to Christ by faith and repentance. You're set apart to me as holy. Now we find that in this one flesh union, far from the believer being polluted by the unbeliever, God takes a kind of covenantal posture to this family based on the believing spouse. That's what he says here. You have to really reckon with that. That, that the, the unbelieving spouse is set apart with the believing spouse under the promises of God, under his special watchful eye. And he says that, uh, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they also are set apart unto the Lord as holy. And I'm going to let you figure out all the details of this because I'm not sure I know them all, but it says in the last verse, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So there's some kind of covenantal setting apart of a family unit that God calls holy that doesn't involve everybody in that household necessarily being saved. Is that a fair conclusion? I mean, that's what this text is saying. And so you, you think about that and you just think of the glory of it. If you're a believer in kind of an unbelieving situation like this, you get to say, the Lord's eye is upon me. I have influence here in Christ. This is, this is a, a, a place that's set apart to the Lord. I don't have to see myself as a victim. I don't have to see myself as some, off in some aberrant place. And as I thought about this, I thought about... Um, and, and I hope you can stick, if you have to explain your illustration, it's not really an illustration. That's what they tell you in preaching school, but I'm going to give it my best shot anyway. In the Old Testament, you read about a king named Asa, and Asa went out to fight against the Cushites. Uh, those are probably South Sudanese people. And uh, he went out to fight against the Cushites, and they had chariots, and they outnumbered them like millions to nothing. And Asa said, Lord, how can we stand against this army? I trust you. And they routed the Cushites. And so the, he sent a prophet to say, Asa, my eye's on you. You just listen to me and everything's going to be fine. And sort of Asa went through his life for 30-some years, I think. And then Asa forgot about the Lord. And he went and made a, a, a contract or a covenant uh, with a nation around him to get help. And so the Lord sent a prophet to, to say to him, why did you do this? I delivered all those Cushites for you. Why would you forget about me and turn to man for help? And he said, don't you know the eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to the one whose heart is steadfast for him? And I think that is really kind of, to me, a picture of this. Don't you know if you're a believer, you're putting Christ first, you're trusting him, the eyes of the Lord are on you. And there are promises for you to claim for that household. It's not a contractual guarantee. And I remember when I was first a believer, people would take up that text from 1 Peter. You know, if a wife will just be uh, submissive and honor her husband, they'll be converted. You know, that there's, it's, this is not a contractual guarantee that everything's going to work out okay. And I think that's a misapplication of that text. But what it means is the Lord is with you and he has set apart that household as holy to himself. 
We're going to baptize a child later today. And I, just, I, I debated whether I was going to get into this. There's a big debate about whether this really supports or doesn't uh, infant baptism. But I'm going to leave it for you to think about that what we're saying in baptism is that there's a believing parent or two believing parents. That child is set apart to the Lord. And, and we bring that child in for a covenantal sign, the sign of entrance into the covenant community. They get to wear the uniform of a believer that they have to grow into. Just like this says, they, they, they have to grow into that and come to faith and repentance for themselves. It's not a saving deal. Okay, so I'll stop now. And uh, let me just say, this is what this text is about. And, you know, quite frankly, we're going to come back to it next week. We're going to come back essentially to the same thing next week. And after that, we're probably going to come back to it again because that's what this chapter is really all about. It pushes back with, with force against our propensity to expressive individualism and finding out, oh, I'll be happy if I can just figure this all out and arrange it my, myself. Uh, I'll be fulfilled. I'm not fulfilled in this marriage. Let me go over there. I'm not fulfilled here or there. Let me, let me make it up myself. Rather than saying, Christ, I will find freedom and joy and fulfillment in following you exactly where you place me right now with tenderness and compassion. So that's the message for today, to make Christ Lord in singleness and in marriage. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for uh, this time to be together around your word. Oh, Lord, we, uh, I want to ask you that you just take all the details and all the things that have been spoken in this last 30 minutes or so, and uh, we give them over to you. Pray that you would make them a blessing if they're... Um, confusing to anybody that you would you would uh, take that away and lord give us a pure and simple devotion to christ we pray holy spirit that you would come and fill us with joy in knowing that our sins are forgiven and that you have your eye upon us in the circumstances in which you've placed us Uh, father will you have your way with us we pray in jesus name amen